Hey, welcome to More Christ. My name is Marcus. Today I'm joined once again by two brilliant gentlemen, Jonathan Pajot and Dr. Bernardo Castrop. Jonathan is a French-Canadian icon carver, public speaker and YouTuber, exploring the symbolic patterns that underlie our experience of the world, how these patterns emerge and come together, manifest in religion, art and in popular culture. He's also the editor of the Orthodox Arts Journal and host of the Symbolic World blog and podcast. Bernardo is the executive director of Essentia Foundation. His work has been leading the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. He's a PhD in philosophy and another PhD in computer engineering. So I suppose just to begin then, um, I'd love to know really what was what stuck with you, gents, from the last conversation we had and maybe some of the threads that you'd like to follow up then. Um, if you start with Shab, Jonathan. I really enjoyed the last conversation. I thought that it was, I thought that I was able to understand Bernardo's thought more and also able to connect it with the, let's say the areas of thinking and research that I'm involved with. I'm more, I'm definitely interested in exploring more of the, the question of mind as it applies, applies to higher beings or distributed consciousnesses, the different ways that people are phrasing it. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that even more now. And so that's something that I'm interested in exploring, still seeing how we can make sense of agency in terms of agency that appears above us as humans. Yeah, you know, on my side, it was a delight to to sort of get uh, live uh, confirmation of the fact that uh, there are people out there still that um, consider it important um, to have a symbolic religious life, religious symbolism, religious icons, um, and, in, and consider it important to nurture those as well. Um, I find it uh, surprising that even amongst many, many Christians, Catholics, Protestant Christians, um, the value of symbolism has uh, largely been lost, and there is a, a overemphasis, in my view, uh, on morals, which is something that can legitimately be derived from religion. Um, but morals are not the sum total of religion. There is much more to the religious life uh, than morals. And symbolism, to me, is crucial to that. And, uh, and Jonathan is sort of the living embodiment uh, of that attitude uh, in the world that, uh, frankly, began to be lost during the Reformation uh, already. Um, the Reformation was inspired by legitimate, good and important reasons. But as almost everything human beings do, it sort of careens out of control and throws the baby out with the bathwater. And religious symbolism, iconic symbolism, has been lost even to the Catholic Church and today is kept alive only by the Orthodox churches uh, across the world. Um, so it's nice to see that uh, that vein in the human mind is still nurtured and kept alive. Thanks, Bruno. And uh, would you like to phrase what you just described as a question then, Jonathan, take it from there? Sure. I mean, so maybe I can just, so I've been th thinking a lot about the the problem of, you know, we talked about the idea of, for example, the, the China or like the angel of China or something like that. The idea that there is some kind of agency, there are agencies which act above us, the above the human level and seem to constrain us in our own agency, let's say, as we act. Um, and this is something with John Braveke, we've been discussing a lot. He tends to be willing to use the word agency, though he really wants to avoid the word uh, consciousness in those in in that question. 
Um, and so that is really the, what I'm really curious to explore a little more. Based on our discussion, maybe I can start with this. Uh, so we talked. I talked about this idea of let's say the angel of China. Let's use that word or the principality of China. And you were you were diff, you were bothered by the notion of how is it that it exists? Let's say how is it that it exists outside of the time that China exists in the world? So right, does it have prior existence? Does it continue to exist after after its its existence? And and, and reflecting what is on China? that. How do All you right. delineate China? That's the other question. Where do yeah. you find the spatial boundaries? Well, I think that the the I was thinking about that later, and I was starting to wonder if that's not the same problem from in the in the case of humans as well, right? And the the idea that we have permeable boundaries, humans do as well, both mentally, but then also physically. Our physical boundaries, because they're at the level of our perception, we see them as more solid, but they are. They're, they're, they're permeous. And the same would be for a higher being, let's say a city or, or a state. It has, you can still locate it, even physically in the world. You can locate it conceptually, but it does have permeability on its edges. And it seems to, so you can't fix it that way. It's so like here, I'm really going to be more like Neoplatonic in the sense that you can, you can only fix it in its higher aspect. You can fix it in its identity. So it's actually its name use the name used more in a more ancient way that fixes it and then its manifestation or the the quantity of it will always have permeability and change so it's the ship of theseus problem right it's like is the ship of theseus still the ship of theseus even though its parts have been have changed have been in my answer would be yes it is because it's actually held together by by name by memory by attention by all these these mechanisms before I comment on that, can I ask you a question uh, inspired by something you said? If I don't ask the question now, it will be lost. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Go ahead. You said John Verveke was comfortable using the word agency for higher levels uh, of mentation, but not the word consciousness. Do, do you know what difference he makes in his mind between the two and why this this distinction? Well, he seems to he seems to for, well he seems to think first of all that that consciousness is a very specific uh aspect which has to do with certain amount of speed and so speed of connection is what would give rise let's say to consciousness i mean i don't really ag agree with that myself but that is that that is his main argument he might he might say i'm not getting him right so let's be careful here but oh, this I is know. the understanding that i have of his argument is that is that in the human brain there is there's a, a certain amount of speed of connection and interconnectivity which can give rise to a state of consciousness, but that you can't perceive that, let's say at the city level, the connections are slow, you know, like writing emails and writing letters and, and, and uh, you know, people talking amongst each other in order to organize the, the activities of the city, you would have a, would have a slower connection. Um, and so I don't, to be honest, I don't, I don't mind that. I think that there are just different types of consciousnesses. I, I don't mind the idea that, that it would be a slower consciousness or just a consciousness that, has a different function than the human, uh, but that that's that that is the argument that I've heard him make. I think I understand. I think he's basing that on uh, information integration theory, um, which I think applies to meta consciousness, self awareness, uh, right. metacognition, not necessarily to consciousness in the phenomenal sense, pure experience. So I think he is probably conflating the two, like a lot of neuroscientists today conflate uh, the two. 
but but I understand where it's coming from. I also don't agree because when I talk about consciousness, I talk about phenomenal consciousness, not meta consciousness. But uh, but I understand the motivation. Now back to your point. Uh, what I would warn against, uh, Jonathan, is attributing private conscious inner life to anything we have or can make up a word for. Because words are cheap. Uh, what is China? Does it include Tibet and Hong Kong and Macau or not? And depending on the decision you make here, whether China includes these three things or not, does it affect the ontological reality of there being an angel of China or a separate angel for China and another one for Hong Kong and another one for Macau and another one for Tibet? You see what I mean? Um, yeah. The same, the same applies to a table in the case of panpsychism. Mm -hmm. If the panpsychist says the table is conscious, has a private inner life of its own, if I pull out one of the feet of the table, one of the four legs, uh, do I create some kind of dissociation and I create a new conscious entity? And does that new conscious entity remerges with the table if I nail the leg back to the table or a rock that detaches from a mountain? Does it become separate from the mountain with an inner life, a private inner life of its own? And does it reunite every time it touches the mountain as it bounces off the slope? Um, so we create a mess if we if we see everything identifiable through a noun, through a word, as an agent, as a conscious agent. Because yeah. you know the way we apply words is arbitrary. The way we define sets, subsets, and superset, supersets in language is arbitrary. It's nominal, as philosophers call it. it. It's done by convenience and doesn't necessarily reflect any ontological reality. Okay, so there are two things I would I would say to that, or that I would that made that I think when I hear that one is I can apply again the same the same problem to myself if I see myself as a conscious agent. I can ask myself when I cut does my hair participate in my conscious agency? You know, do my fingernails? What about if I cut a finger off? Does the finger now, you know, so I can ask the same question. This is why that I, I tend to think that that categories are captured in their in their name or in the place where they come together rather than try to find them contained in the place where their multiplicity has a possibility of, of breaking apart, let's say. I see your point, but I think you miss uh, the one criterion we have to define the boundaries of us as as uh, um, individual agents with private conscious inner life of their own, and it's an it's a criterion that applies to us and doesn't apply to objects, doesn't apply to the table, to the mountain, or to China. And it's the following: if I uh, pierce the chair I'm sitting on with a needle, I don't feel it, but if I pierce my arm, I do feel it. Yeah. If a photon in my study uh, hits the wall behind me, I don't see it. But if it hits my retina, I do experience it. So th there is a objective uh, a criterion for defining the boundaries of the human being. And that is what you register as an experience when something interacts with it and what you don't register as an experience when something interacts with it. Now, I acknowledge that based on this criterion, there is a question that is valid, which is, are we the totality of ourselves 
or are we only our nervous system? Because it's only the nervous system uh, that registers. You know, that there there are no nerve terminations in your hair, um, so it's not part of you. But then I would say, well, there are no living cells in your hair either. It's just keratin. The mm. same applies for your nails. Um, so I see that there is a question there, um, but I don't think it's a free for all. I don't think. No, I don't think it's a free for all either, for sure. But in terms of China, for example, so I agree with the table. It's it's it's. But let's say if you look at China, the question that you ask could be answered in terms of China. So in terms of boundaries. So you would say, so imagine there's China and then there are a bunch of people that are that are coming in and taking things like from another state. You know, they at first they they take refuse, maybe they take the trash on the side. And when they do that, they don't hurt China and China doesn't matter, doesn't doesn't care. But then at some point, maybe they come in and they start to take things or they take part of the land or they they take certain things that are that China perceives as belonging to it. And then then China will react very much like a pain reaction, will send out soldiers, antibodies, and will re, will push away the threat that it that it is feeling uh, on itself. And so if you see it that way then at some point the the question of tibet or macau or the or, the, or these or these other identities would be something like you can you can imagine it like it's a conflict of of identities it, this is what's happening there is a conflict of identity where china wants to extend its body to include these smaller identities and those identities are resisting you can almost imagine it like someone in the forest hunting uh, a deer and wants to 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 integrate the deer into himself and the deer is resisting my my street has a neighborhood watch so if there is a strange person doing funny things on my street it will be ejected by the nervous system of the street um does my street have an angel is there an angel of the street where bernardo lives yeah, I don't know. I'm These are the questions that I'm asking. I'm it's trying to figure question. out, like, to what, like, where, how can we proceed? Like, to what, because there are some, for example, there are some theologians that go all out with this. They'll say, as soon as two people encounter themselves, there's a third being there. As soon as two people have a conversation, there's a third being. And 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 it's like, that's, I know, it's like, I'm not sure I want to go there, but I'm just saying that these 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 problems have been thought about in different ways to try to account for the manner in which in which there's a higher in which when two people come together there's something more than just the accumulation of the two and we experience it that's what a team is right if you if you plan a team you realize that there's an agency beyond my individual agency or just the accumulation of agency that seems to manifest itself when we're dancing together towards a common purpose I think the crux of the matter is what one means by agency. Um, if agency is defined in such a way that an agent has its own private conscious inner life, um, then I think it's tricky to say that uh, there is a third agent when two people talk because there is no evidence that in addition to the private inner life of the two, there is a third private inner life constituted of the combination of the two. Can I disprove it? No, I cannot. 
but there are countless things one cannot disprove and yet yeah, we yeah. don't entertain because we have no reason to entertain. Um, I, I would caution against conflating conce concepts with um, ontic realities, like an agent with its own private conscious inner life. Well, it is not. I don't think it's concept. So if we, it's a, if you've noticed, for example, that you that conversations you have with different people have different flavors. They 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 have different implicit rules that sometimes you can't even say. Like there's some you act a certain way with your brother, with your 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 parents, and then you act a different way in different relationships. And there's a there's something which is binding the the conversation, which is beyond even each of our own wills. So so we couldn't decide to make our relationship something else than what it is there there's a there, there's a, a kind of binding let's say and that 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 is a there's a kind of agency that binds the relationship in a direction um and so that these are the things that i'm i'm just trying to understand because it's not it's not just concepts it's an experience even on our side like to to be the member of a team and to be playing basketball and going dribbling down the the field and not having to look and then passing the ball because you know that the person is there and they know that you're going to pass it before you do. And that, and you've seen it in a play and then people exult. I mean, when they see something like that, when someone sees multiplicity joined together in a common goal in a way that looks almost like it's, it's one body, there's a joy that we experience. We experience that almost like as a kind of ecstasy, uh, which explains the reason why sport is so, is so one of the reasons why sport is so popular. So those are the types of behaviors that I'm trying to figure out how they relate to, because they can be reduced to just, I don't think they can be. My allusion to concepts was motivated by the analogy you made between the army of China and an immune system. Um, and why is that conceptual? Well, because it's an analogy made at a very high level of conceptual abstraction because there is no similarity at all between the army of China and an immune system. If you think about them literally, you know, what is an immune system and what is the army of China? They are completely different things. You do find a valid similarity, but to find it, you have to operate conceptually at a high level of abstraction. And then I warned against uh, attributing a private conscious inner life to something, uh, to some similarity or based on an analogy that operates on a very high level of conceptual abstraction, because that may have nothing to do with the actual reality uh, of the situation. Um, regarding team, dy team dynamics, I, I, I'm totally there with you that uh, something emerges, weak emergence, something emerges when, when um, entities interact um, and that emergence can be uh, very well synchronized dynamics across the members of the team. Um, I don't think that provides reason to say that there is a higher level agent that has a private conscious inner life of its own just because of amazing team dynamics or because of the way, I don't know, birds synchronize their flights uh, in the late afternoon. Um, and even um, from the fact that uh, your personal inner life, your inner experience changes when you are involved in team dynamics because look every conscious agent always stands to see something happen within itself 
once it interacts with the outside world, including other conscious agents. So that's not a surprise. We change ourselves the moment we interact with the not ourselves, with the world out there, with others out there. Uh, but I don't see a logical reason why this should imply that there is a higher level conscious agent with a private conscious inner life of its own that corresponds to that basketball team or to the anthill. Uh, there may be, I think the argument is stronger for the anthill actually than for the basketball team. Um, but I, I don't think the suggestion is strong. Mm -hmm. I think we can account for all that just based on system dynamics. Uh, but look, if I, if I, there is a thing called cellular automata in computer science. Uh, one of them is called the game of life. It's a very, very simple game based on a matrix of cells yeah. and obeying two very simple rules. Only two rules. Extremely simple. If uh, two or three of your neighbors are alive, then you're alive. Uh, if less or more, then that cell dies because it's overcrowded or doesn't have companionship. Mm -hmm. And then you program a system like that and you set it off based on this extremely simple rule applied recursively to itself. And you see amazing dynamics emerge. You see guns that fire projectiles. Uh, you, you see populations of seemingly living entities emerge. Uh, but, but we know that that's the simple dynamics of applying a simple rule recursively. Uh, and we need nothing further than that to explain that amazing collective dynamics. So to but me, that's, that's... The, to me, that's the, the recursive, the recursive uh, structure. That is the one that I'm attached to, let's say, that is the notion that the notion that, let's say, I am made up of smaller mentations, if you want to, if I'm going to try to use your your try to come close to the language you use it my idea that i recognize myself as one to a certain extent and i see myself as one but i can also notice in myself a multiple agents in me that are sometimes fighting towards with each other sometimes acting in collaboration with each other and when they act in collaboration with each other then i experience more unity and when they act against each other, when they fight with each other, then I experience disunity and it can get to a form of despair if it's too strong. Like if there's too strong a disunity among my constituents, then I can experience I can experience despair. And so that and so what I notice is that that recur that recursive pattern within me, I can notice that I seem to be participating in similar patterns above me. And I can't have, like, just as my, as from above, I can perceive my mental states fighting with each other. I know that those mental states can't perceive me. Like, they can't perceive the unity that I experience that, that sees that multiplicity. And so in the same way, I notice that I am participating uh, in the same type of fractal behavior above me in groups and 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 in and I can see the same pattern where it is that if members of a group collaborate, then we then there's more unity towards the purpose. And if we don't collaborate, then there's more disunity to a point where the, the group can die or can can actually can actually fall apart. Uh, and so that is the thing that I'm interested in in noticing the recursive nature of this 
layered structure, we could say, that moves, seems to move but down below us, but also seems to move up above us. First, just a very quick comment to, to, to clarify what I meant by the term. When I, when I said recursion uh, applied to the cellular automata, what I meant was you apply a rule to define the next state of a cell, and then you apply the same rule to that next state to generate the next state, and then you apply the same rule again and so forth. And I, I didn't mean fractal self-similarity mm -hmm. uh, when I used the word uh, recursion. Um, I sympathize with your intuition, um, but I would say the following. The logic, logic question we have in front of us when we sort of take this intuition seriously, and I have the same intuition, by the way, uh, so I, I take it very seriously. Um, the logic question is the following. Are we talking about one mind that seems to be many, or are we talking about many minds that somehow integrate to be one or less? Um, I would suggest that the very fact that you now can sit there and say, I notice myself being many, suggests very strongly that the direction is top down and not bottom mm. up. It suggests very strongly that you are always one mind and, and that you just seem to be many when there is conflict across different mental processes in yourself. Well, I see it. I see it both ways. This is the way that I that I see it. Uh, I see there's a top down, and then there's a bottom. There's a bottom up aspect, which seems to be represented in different ways in in different in, at different scales. But let's say it's something like love. This is maybe the best word to use. That that there seems to be this notion that if we love each other, then then we actually are becoming, you know, let's say I use Christian language, that if we love each other, then we're becoming the body of the God-man, right? You could say it that way. That, but, that, but then it also is a top-down process, which is that, you know, he is the head, we are the body. You know, the, the, the highest mind is also the cause of the lower minds. But so it's a, you can experience it, seems like you can experience it in both ways. So let's say, Let's say if if the intuition of the scaling, I know that if I want my family to be one, then it, I'm not going to experience it as a top-down experience. I'm going to experience it as an effort to love my wife and to love my kids. And ultimately, it can be a top-down reality. Like I can, you can come to realize that it is in some ways higher a higher mind, which is imposing itself and that the, the 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 conflict that we had was a, was a distortion was an illusion once we've resolved it um but i i definitely experienced it top bottom up when in my in my behavior maybe is the best way to say it towards these towards the i don't know if that if that makes sense it it, it does uh, but i would suggest the following that the, the experience that you're going bottom up is consistent with top down being fundamental in the following mm -hmm. way if the apparent um, fragmentation of mind in this universe, you have your mind, I have mine, and the amoeba in swimming in my toilet has its mind, and my cat has another mind. If that seeming diversity and separation um, is illusory, because illusions are part and parcel of experience. So 
one mind can have the illusion that it's many. And we know that that happens because people suffer from dissociative identity disorder, which is now clinically established as, established as a fact. Uh, and they experience themselves in, in exactly that way. They experience themselves as being many because of dissociation. And yet they are not. They are one mind that has the illusion of being many. Uh, you experience that um, even without pathological levels of dissociation, when you repress your memories, repress your emotions, when you experience cognitive dissonance. Um, now, if that becomes the starting state, the illusion of separation, the illusion of being many, when some of that illusion is dissolved and you come one step closer to the reality of the matter, you will experience that as if it were a bottom-up process. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, it's not. It's a return. It's not a going forward. It's a yeah. going backwards to where it all started. So I, I think for sure, I mean, I think we agree fundamentally, not the illusion part, I get to that, but like fundamentally in terms of, you know, like to use Christian language again, we could say, you know, like grace, grace comes first. So without grace, it has to come from above first. Everything has to kind of flow from above. But the love part, the reason why I think it's important is because love doesn't annihilate the multiplicity. Love actually preserves the multiplicity. And that's why I think it's such a fundamental concept in Christianity, which is that love will say something like, we can be both one and many at the same time. And so I can both, move towards unity and perceive the multiplicity and see them as, of course, not having an equal ontological state. It is The unity is superior to the multiplicity, but the multiplicity can fully participate kind of indefinitely as this, this indefinite variation in multiplicity in the, the one. And so I find the language of illusion, I tend to find the language of illusion uh, more dangerous, like in terms of in terms of morality and in what and the implications of what that that means you know you see that because because i it seems like the notion that multiplicity is illusory and that unity is is the only thing that's real the one mind is the only thing that real seems to lead to something at least in in the the, the ways of thinking that have brought this about it seems to lead to something like degradation in multiplicity where the multiple is 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 lesser in, in almost in a moral sense where you see that in the caste system we see that in, in gnostic cosmologies where creation is evil in its in itself and love seems to be the way that christians tried to to reconcile that with reconcile unity and multiplicity together i, I didn't mean to pass any value judgment on illusions uh, <laughs> at all uh, i i used the word in the you know in the very dry technical yeah. analytic philosophical sense which is uh, when things seem to be something other than what they in fact are. Mm. Uh, it's the seeming that is an illusion, but I didn't mean to pass value judgment on illusions, meaning I don't see it as good or as bad. I see it as something that happens. It's one of the potentials of nature and it happens. And the usefulness of the idea is just to distinguish between what seems to be and what we have reason to think is actually the case. Mm. Um, and we know that a, a person who is suffering from dissociative identity disorder only seems to be many because that person can be cured 
can reintegrate all of its alter personalities and remember the memories of each one of them mm. and know that uh, the person was one all along and it just seemed to be many. Now, I, I, using a pathology as an example may suggest value judgment because, you know, pathology is bad, so illusion is bad. And that's where my 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 metaphor went wrong. I didn't mean to pass yeah, value yeah, yeah, judgment yeah. on it at all. But there's also, there's also, I think there's more, at least in my vision, there's more than that because there's a sense in which, so if there's, so obviously I'm, I'm, I'm making a lot of leaps here, but just hopefully you can indulge me. But let's say we talk about this fractal system of embedded beings, you know, in, in each other, and that this is a reflection of the one mind and this fractal manifestation of how the one and the many coexist in each other. So we have that sense. There's a way in which, because what I see that in many of the, the thinkers that I admire, I see that, for example, C.S. Lewis had some very beautiful imagery to talk about that, where he would talk about how as you get closer to the one, the multiple becomes more real. It 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 actually it actually um shines with more reality because it's connected to the one. And it's when it's disconnected. So you could say that about the multiple personality person. The problem with the multiple personality person is not that they have multiple personalities, you could say, but it's that those personalities don't know each other and don't aren't united above. But if they're united above, then you notice that you do have within you a multiplicity of desires and of thought patterns and of directions. Um, and that you could something like love all these multiplicities and give them the reality they deserve let's say in in the the, the human existence i'm totally with you there okay um, uh, sometimes i speak of myself as many when i say that i have a diamond and the diamond sets you know the direction pace and tone of my life and that i've learned to not try to resist that anymore to just apply some kind of adult moral supervision to the diamond because the diamond is a force of nature and it doesn't really pass value judgments. So I even speak of myself as many. Um, and I'm totally with you that to mature, not only as a person, but even as an entity in nature, entails um, giving space to the multiplicity within us, accepting the existence of all that exists within us, giving it its time under the sun as opposed to trying to slash it away to mm. mutilate yourself or repress or pretend that it's not there. Um, that doesn't work. Um, so I am with you there. Um, my pushback comes from that nuanced, subtle, and very trick, tricky boundary when we cross from speaking metaphorical language, which is meant to evoke something, evoke something in the mind of another, and we cross it into some literal statement. And crossing that boundary can be tricky because it may involve, for instance, in my case, saying that uh, there is a actual diamond inside me that, it's, that is not me. And then it becomes a demon, not a diamond. And it's a fundamentally separate entity <clears throat> that sort of tricks me into doing its bidding. Now, th then it goes wrong. Th that's mm -hmm. where it goes wrong. And, and I sense that uh, if we are 
too relaxed in terms of defining entities, we cross that boundary and we start projecting angelic entities everywhere in anything that we can use a word for and conceptually distinguish from its surroundings. Um, and the reason I find it tricky, Jonathan, is the following. It, it, it's not limited to the discussion you, you and, I, and I are having. It, it, it sort of gives the tone to everybody's worldviews, even in the West, mainly in the West, which is the conflation of nouns with entities. Um, we have nouns for all kinds of sub-entities that are part of the world, the world. But these objects, these sub-entities, are carved out in a completely nominal way. In other words, it, it's an arbitrary separation, an arbitrary inner boundary within the totality that we call existence. For instance, where does the river end and the ocean begin? I, I, I live in a but country. Why do you say arbitrary? I, I, it's a functional, it's a, it's a purposeful it's, distinction, yes. one which fits our, our purposes as conscious uh, age, agents. And so it's like the, dis, the difference between the river and the ocean is an important distinction because you can drink from the river, you can't drink from the ocean. And therefore, even though there is a buffer of, of, of inter, inter, interdeterminate uh, indeterminacy, uh, those categories are nonetheless but, yeah, what consciously I by... attributed, like they, they, they serve our consciousness, we could say. Yes. What I meant yeah. by arbitrary is that it's nominal. In other words, it's determined by convenience and use and does not necessarily reflect a ontic aspect of the world. It doesn't necessarily reflect the world as it is in and of itself. For instance, um, there is a subset of existence that we call a car. And we say, well, the car ends here on the surface of the tires and, you know, whatever. Um, and if I ask you, okay, give me a clear criterion or criteria for determining what is part of the car and what is not, because the car is made of components and pieces that are just brought together. So are the spark plugs integral to the car? And you might say, well, yes, because without the spark plugs, the car doesn't function, it doesn't move. And then I will latch onto that and say, okay, then the engine is part of the car, yes. The tire, tires are part of the car, yes. Now let's go ahead. If there is no road for the tires to grip, the car doesn't move. So the roads are part of the car. No, 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 wait a moment. If there is no gravity to pull the tires towards the road, it doesn't grip either and it doesn't move either. So the gravity needs to be part of the car. Where does the gravity come from? From the total mass of the planet. So the car is everything. It's the entire planet. Oh, actually not. Because the planet is what it is. Because it rotates and is kept within a stable orbit of its parent star. So the star, the sun, is part of the car. And I will go on and on and on and on with this. Yeah. And, and never. So but, but that's no why you car. don't. That, well, that's why you don't you don't the boundary of the thing is not in its physical quantities or in its it, it's actually in its name or in its purpose. That's what the, that the the it's the limit of the car appears in its limit in its name or in its purpose rather than in its if you so but you could what you're saying is true of everything like yes. anything that, that that you even your even conscious agents like you know you can stretch that you there that you cannot find a a fixed 
uh, a fixed boundary between things. They okay. are all permeous. There is one exception to this. Every carving out of existence is nominal. I've stopped using the word arbitrary. It's nominal. It's done by convenience. So it's epistemic. It's not ontological. It reflects our convenience and not the actual states of affair, affairs in the world. But there is one exception to this, and I already mentioned that the boundaries of us as entities are objectively determinable. Because if I stick a needle on my chair, I don't feel it. But if I stick a needle on my skin, I do feel it. It's the only thing, the boundaries uh, of living minds as determined by what they can experience and what they can't. Everything else, carving out the inanimate universe into objects, is nominal. It's done by convenience. And therefore, I don't think it's logical for us to say, well, something I carved out merely by convenience has a private inner life of its own. Why? Because it, it, it's akin to taking an abstract painting and saying, I will nominally determine that the subset of all reddish pixels on this painting are a thing. Yeah. And now there is an angel for the reddish pixels on, on the canvas. Why? That, that carving out was completely based on yeah. convenience or taste or whatever. It doesn't necessarily reflect the states of affair beyond your own mind. Yeah. That's what I was warning against. No, I... I, I Attributing I, I, a, a, a conscious agency to everything we create a word for. Yeah. Well, one of the ways, one of the ways that I, it seems, this is something I've been thinking about recently. Uh, and and some people watching this are, are really going to struggle with what I'm going to say, but that's fine. We'll say it anyways. So there's a there's a sense in which in the in the Bible there's a figure that appears, the Son of Man, right? You see this figure appear in the Book of Daniel. You also see it appear, but not named in the in the Book of Ezekiel in the Divine Vision, where there's the shape of a man on the on the divine chariot. Um, and Philo of Alexandria develops this idea of Adam Kadmon or universal man or heavenly man, different ways to talk about it. Of course, in Christianity, we have the sense in which Christ is that incarnation of the heavenly man. But even if, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you don't even need that yet in order to understand the notion of positing man at the right hand of God, ruling over the angels. And, and the sense would be that that there's a manner in which I think we talked about it this last time, which is that all perception of, of agency in the world is reflected through human agency. So it's actually mirrored through the human, the human that we can perceive images of agency in the world, both below us, you know, or on the same level, but also above us. So the image, for example, that, you know, the image that the Son of Man rules over the angels, that the Son of Man is above the angels, and and the sense would be that the angels serve man. Well, you see, you hear that in Christian theology, uh, but that could have a more technical meaning, which is the notion that the the perceptions of agency that we have or the cohesion that we see in the world actually are in the service of man. That is, they 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 are they are real to the extent that they serve human in the with the man with the big m you know the ma the, the, the the man with the big m um so that is for me at least it's it's been a way that i've been trying to think about the problem so if you think about a team for example right so higher agencies like china or all these other 
higher beings that seem to have some kind of agency over us, that if we have the notion that they ultimately should serve man with a capital M, then they it seems to make more sense that although they have agency over us, ultimately they are mirrored through our consciousness as something which is there for us because basketball is there not for, you know, it's there for us. It's, it's, it has, it has a human. Yeah. Anyways, I don't know if you, what do you think about? What, no, that no, no, I am totally with you. Now I okay. converge fully with you. Um, it is in so far as it helps us in some way, even if a not metacognitive way to project agency onto the world according to delineations that serve our purposes best, I think it's perfectly all right to do that. I would call it a metaphorical carving out of the world. And I do that with myself even. It, it, it helps me regard my own mind as a multiplicity and talk of, talk, talk of the diamond. Mm. Um, the diamond reflects <clears throat> its usefulness to me I create the diamond by looking at myself with those lenses. So in that sense, I'm playing the role of the son of man. And I determine what are the angelic entities within me based on what will bring me forward in the most productive, teleological, you know, uh, morally positive way. Mm -hmm. I'm totally with you there. Um, and so could you that, perceive that this would... So the, so the idea would be, the way that I see it, would be that that could also go awry, that process. So it could also become uh, parasitic, where, uh, yeah. where, 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 you know, we, ha we have, we project, if you want to, we use that term, where there are angels that are supposed to serve us and that have, that hold beings together, that have agency over us, that become, that become twisted because they were, they were created with 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 uh, parasitic desires or whatever it is or or these multiple personalities that were were acting at a higher level. So I think about like Facebook for me is the great example of that. You know where it's like we we create this thing, and then the person the the people who created it did not understand the they didn't do it in wisdom. You could say they didn't understand the side effects of the being they were unleashing on the world. And so now Facebook has agency over people. It actually, it actually manages the way that they pay attention, the way that they communicate, the way that they come into relationship with each other. And now all the side effects of that are starting to show themselves in, you know, in hyper-politicized groups and all these types of things that everybody's been complaining about Facebook for, for years now, but that you can see the process of the, the process of a of a good angel that would manage our behavior together going awry and becoming parasitic let's say yeah i mean, I, I think it would, we don't even need to go to facebook we can stay within <laughs> the universe of our own minds um i think anybody who pays attention and has paid attention for a while in their adult life knows that demons are real not real in the literal sense in the sense that uh, my demons would still be here and exist even if I were not around. No, that, that 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 crosses the line to literal territory. And I think that not only is wrong literally, but it flattens the message of you know of the metaphorical world too much. Um, but if I don't cross that line, 
that there are demons within me it's a, it's an obvious fact of existence there are the demons of addiction within me that are insatiable and will eat myself alive if there aren't the angels of teleology and meaning that keep them in check mm -hmm. um, uh, you could describe almost the entire depth and richness of human conscious life with the language of angels and demons and and, and i think therein lies the, the profound truth of religious language um, but, but i would i would push back a little bit on saying that they don't exist outside me and the reason why i would say that is because because i can gain insight about my demons from others and so i can re i recognize that other people are dealing with the same demon that i'm dealing with and so although its manifestation is purely individual right it you could you could say that if if there's this fractal if there's this fractal structure let's say that there's an there's an anal there's an analogous aspect in me a passion this is the way that the church fathers talk about it there's a passion in me that's out of control and that passion corresponds to something which is transpersonal and this transpersonal thing will hook on to that and then will run like a program in you and will will we'll, let's say will run this parasitic program inside you and so so I, if I, I can read a church father from the fifth century and that church father can help me deal with my demon because they had to deal with the same, the same demon, let's say. I will agree with you even there. Um, um, the distinction is how we use the word I, right? Because you said, well, there are things outside me. What, what is the me? Mm -hmm. um, I think if we call the I our core subjectivity, I think there is nothing outside that because the core mm -hmm. subjectivity in me is the same as that in you and it's the core subjectivity of the divinity itself. It's it's that field of uh, transpersonal subjectivity that underlies all nature. Nothing exists outside of it. So all angels and demons exist there and they are mm -hmm. outside my ego. Um, my angels and demons are certainly outside my ego and that's why it's useful for the ego to talk of them as external entities, but I don't think they are outside my core subjectivity. Right. So if you under, understand the fact that the like when you would say some like the fact that you are connected to the ground of being at the core of who you are, like the divine spark or Christ in you, or you know, different ways of expressing it in tradition that that at the very core of you is mm -hmm. the same, right? Is the is that is that one yeah, yeah, that one ground, let's say, yeah. And that's why there is a sense, even though you may not like that sense because of the use of words, but that's why there is a sense in which, um, I lost my train of thought now, but there is a sense in which unity is fundamental and not diversity because all diversity unfolds within that one core subjectivity. That, that's what I meant when I said that multiplicity is ultimately an illusion which is not to say that there aren't levels in the hierarchy of being where those illusions are very real yeah still as illusions but very real for every conceivable practical purpose yeah well and, for sure for sure in, in in christian theology they try to make put multiplicity right at the highest right there right you know the trinity is is the the really the expression of the multiplicity at the at the very core 
and that 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 one and many are the very principle by which all things exist. Like there, that that this loving relationship between the one and the many is the, yeah. the mode yeah. of being of all things. And in that context, are there transpersonal angels and demons? Based on my own inner experience, I would say yes, there are. I personally have very little doubt about it, uh, if any. Uh, I see three levels of identity. One is the ego, uh, that narrative we think of us as being that narrative, that little person born on that date, married to that other person who has this job and so forth. That's the ego. That's the first level. The next level is what is yours personally, but is beyond the ego. In Jungian terminology, the personal unconscious. It's all your of your repressed stuff, uh, your the stuff that you don't acknowledge about yourself, the memories that you're not recalling. Um, it, it's still you as an individual mind, but it's well beyond your ego. And it's much, much, much bigger than the ego, but it's still you as an individual agent. And then there is a transpersonal which in Jungian terminology would be the collective unconscious, which is still psychic, it's still mental, it's still phenomenally conscious, it's just not meta-conscious. Um, and there are psychic processes there, psychic complexes, um, that Jung called the diamonds, <laughs> um, that may not have a physical correlate, uh, which evolution did not have a motivation to creating as a perceptual apparatus capable of picking those entities out because they may not have a direct bearing on our ability to survive, may mm -hmm. not pose a direct physical threat to us. So we didn't evolve the sense organs or the, the perceptual apparatus to pick them out, but they may still be out there in that, in that ocean of mind of which we are a part and within which we are immersed as individual uh, agencies. And they may impinge on us. Uh, they may not have a direct bearing on our ability to survive, but they most definitely have a direct bearing on our ability to be happy or be depressed or be sad uh, or engage in addictive patterns of behavior, of being capable of developing a certain degree of um, self-insight. Uh, do I believe they are there? I think, well, Speaking as an analytic philosopher under the premises of analytic idealism, I would say it's a virtual statistical certainty that they are out there because what are the chances that we would have developed the perceptual apparatus that is required to pick out everything around? Zero. That's not how evolution works. That, that's, not, that's not how stuff works. Um, so there are semi-autonomous psychic complexes out there uh, which you could call individuated agents to some extent, still part of this single core subjectivity, ultimately still part of the one, but behaving as a distinct aspect uh, uh, of whatever is going on, that have subtle bearing on, on our conscious inner lives, sometimes even less than subtle bearing on our conscious inner lives. There are There is what Jung called the collective shadow, which can grip an entire country, an entire civilization. Um, and on the other hand, there are the archangels that can grip entire countries and entire civilizations as well. And they are not us as individuals. They are not us as egos, even less. Um, but they are in us as core subjects, core subjectivity. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so from that perspective, I think unity is fundamental. But in practice, diversity um, is what life is about. Mm-hmm. I know, Marcus. If if you want to pipe in, if you have something that you're that this is making you think about. So, one of the things that's coming across to me is the once we reach the limits of language, as it were, that we arrive at these series of paradoxes. And um, I, I got the same impression whenever you were speaking with John Verbecki that the nature of reality lays itself out as this kind of narrative pattern, but also this non-logical and to collapse it into one is damaging. And then um, I sort of wanted to ask Bernardo a bit about this as a scientist too. Uh, does science itself even uh, point, point beyond itself in this kind of paradoxical way with things like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle or Goodell's incompleteness theorem, things like that, and reading somebody like McGilchrist's work it's the work that he seems to be doing on the brain even seems to suggest this, where he's using the best science to point beyond science and he ends up resorting to things like music to convey his deepest reflections. Does that make sense? And um, I wonder what you would think about that. <laughs> um, in philosophy, um, there is a serious and significant school of thought uh, that puts forward the notion that true paradoxes exist and they can be as trivial as language paradoxes such as the following statement this statement is false this is a true paradox because if this statement is true then it is false but it is false then it's true so the statement is either both or neither and the law of excluded middle one of the five axioms of aristotelian logic is out the window something as trivial as a phrase this statement is false, is a true contradiction from that sense. Um, But it is a contradiction only under the axioms of Aristotelian logic, and namely the law of excluded middle, the, the notion that something is either true or false, never both and never neither. Um, But as every axiom of logic, this too, is a fundamentally arbitrary axiom. We adopt the axioms because they seem to us to be self-evidently true, but you cannot logically argue for the validity of logic without incurring circular reasoning or begging the question. So I, I take this notion seriously. Having said that, I think appeals to science as proving that there are true contradictions in the world are misleading at best and probably flat out fallacious. For instance, this notion that um, particles can be waves or can be uh, uh, particles at the same time is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of quantum theory. Uh, there is no such a thing as particles being waves and being particles at the same time. The waves in question are models of probability distribution. Uh, The particle itself isn't a wave and isn't a particle either. What we are talking about is the probability distributions of making certain measurements. And if you truly understand that, 
then wave particle duality is not an instance of a true contradiction in the world at, in the world at all. That that's based on very superficial misunderstanding uh, of the science uh, involved. So, um, and that's a pity that people do that because they don't need these misrepresentations and misunderstandings to make a strong case that Aristotelian logic has brought us so far but cannot bring us further, that we need to revise our basic axioms of logically, logic, particularly the law of excluded middle and get rid of it like a Dutch philosopher called uh, Lautzenbrauer proposed in the very early 20th century. Get rid of that axiom because it leads to ridiculous situations. For instance, let me give you an example. Because we think that everything is either true or false, never both and never neither, I can prove that a completely unknown and undefined thing exists even though I have never seen it, even though I can't even describe it, I can't say what it is, but I can prove that it exists by proving that it cannot not exist. Now, that's insane, that's ridiculous. That's taking our epistemology and projecting it onto the world as ontology. Uh, it doesn't work. To prove that something exists at the very minimum, you have to describe precisely what it is that you're saying that exists. But the law of excluded middle, if it's taken in, into our axioms, uh, allows for something that I don't even describe to be proven to exist, which is nonsensical. So I, I'm all for revising our logic and maybe adopting intuitionistic logic, which is the technical term for, for the logic proposed by Lautzenbrauer. But I think it's fallacious to say that quantum mechanics proves that the world is illogical. No, it. Uh, I think that's based on misunderstanding of quantum theory. Mm. And um, what is your view on, is it Gigerenzer and people like that and his notion of unconscious intelligence, Bernardo? Have you come across much by him that kind of um, rational, rationality beyond rationalism which seems to suggest that, for, well, one, humans are not primarily rational in that kind of smaller sense, but also that we are in kind of studying persons as if they could be reliably and rationally um, predicted. I think that we can easily predict patterns, but different populations produce different kind of results and tests by econ economics professors and things like that because us and our choices are so hard to predict in part and multifaceted if we have this kind of, say, economic system built on these prior myths uh, that uh, were primarily rational in that cruder sense and free choosing agents. So then as long as we maintain that bias, will we see these more impoverished uh, results and misleading metrics then? And I'm, I'm interested in how, that, um, how that's built in, into our institutions. And do you see any examples that concern you or... I'd prefer to call it spontaneous intelligence as opposed to unconscious intelligence. Um, when people refer to it as unconscious intelligence, they are implicitly defining consciousness as meta-consciousness. In other words, the ability not only to experience, but to know that you are experiencing. That's meta-consciousness. And the denial of that, people call loosely unconsciousness. Well, in fact, it's just... Uh, spontaneous intelligence is when you take 
several steps in your line of thinking that you are not explicitly aware of taking, but those steps, steps are still conscious. You just don't know that you're experiencing them, but you are experiencing them, if you know what I mean. So you could call these um, this form of reasoning um, spontaneous intelligence, which is a form of intelligence that unfolds without being um, under the microscope of explicit introspection. Um, I Do I believe this exists? Absolutely. And the proof of it is the universe. Uh, the universe is the product of the spontaneous intelligence of nature. You can start talking about the fine tuning and all that stuff, although I find that stuff disconcerting and probably human projection is involved here. But even if the order of the universe is a human projection, and there is a very strong case to be made that it is, and I personally believe that it is. But even if it is that, then, then it's a projection of spontaneous human intelligence because we don't catch ourselves constructing the order of the universe, if you know what I mean. Uh, it, it's just there. Um, once I made an experiment, I decided to... I, I'm an amateur chess player and no, no, I don't play in tournaments or anything. I just have fun playing chess and I don't want to ever go beyond that. But once I decided to do an experiment, um, and play chess without what chess players call calculations, which is the difference is the following. Sometimes you look at a position on the board and something in you knows how you should go forward, what your next moves should be, what you should try to do. But you don't know why you know that. You don't know why you think that this is the right move. And what you do is you start calculating uh, you start playing out the moves in the imaginary board inside your head. Often you catch chess players like this. They are not napping. It's just that they are calculating 20 moves ahead. And if they're watching the board in front of them, it disturbs those calculations because they are seeing pieces not moving while they have to see the pieces moving. You know? And the board, the physical board, keeps on bringing them back to that position, doesn't let them calculate. Or you often see chess players doing like this. Uh, Nakamura, which is an American chess player, he, he's often like this. And you're like, what does he see in the ceiling? Well, he sees the chessboard 20 moves ahead. That's calculating. I decided to play three chess matches without calculating, just following my intuition. And the results were well above my ELO rating. I had a much higher score than normal. And then I started believing in this. And I played the fourth game, totally spontaneous, and I lost miserably. <laughs> <laughs> and what, I, what I'm trying to say by this is the following. Spontaneous intelligence definitely exists. It's definitely very powerful. But if you indulge in it too much, you can step on minds. It can go wrong. So the ideal situation is how to find a balance between explicit intelligence in which you take your steps of reasoning explicitly and you cross-check them and the holistic approach of uh, um, spontaneous intelligence, which is not focused on discrete steps, but focused on seeing the whole pattern at once. Finding that balance is, is the key to being successful in many aspects of life, not only at playing chess. <laughs> Would you like to add anything, Jonathan? No, I, I, I'm seeing, I'm, I, I really, I, 
I find it very interesting what you're talking about because you you can find examples, you find types of people too, types of people that have followed that spontaneous, you know, and for example, the Franciscans for a short part of their existence, they would get up in the morning <clears throat> and they would just turn on their on themselves and then whatever direction they would stop, they would just go in that direction. And then <laughs> and then they would just you know, without food, without anything, and just encounter whatever it is that they encountered, you know. Um, and so like Renato said, it, it probably led to some great things, but it also led to some pretty, some darker like moments, right? Because I know people like that. They, 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 in Christian terms, people say something like, we follow the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Spirit guides us. This kind of intuition that they, sometimes it goes great and sometimes it goes horribly, <laughs> like just worse than any. I mean, it's like so you end up in the very worst place. Uh, so, so I kind of understand that. Uh, can I make a quick comment on that, Jonathan? Just, yeah. just to make sure that people understand my position. I don't think the Holy Spirit ever gets it wrong. No, words, I know. I of think... course not. No, I agree. But, you know, people just go with their... No, no, no. Without that, saying. That's the point. Yeah. When it goes wrong, it's not the spontaneous intelligence of nature that failed. It's when we take ourselves to be the subtle intelligence of nature. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it's a very, very subtle state of mind to be in tune with the subtle intelligence of nature that underlies us and everything else and believe your own bullshit. Yeah. It's but don't you very, think, though, in, in, ter case of, in, in terms of the chess, that, that the training that you gave yourself, let's say, for many years, I imagine, playing chess, is also the proper body in which to maybe let that intuition go. Because if you just get someone who's played chess once in their life and say, yeah, just, just follow your intuition, they might not make it very far. Like there's there's as if there's an, you have to, I mean, imagine like a, a, a sports player too. You, you play your 10,000 hours or whatever, and then at some point you stop thinking, you just act because it's so integrated in you that it's almost leading itself into, into realizations. I get that when I'm carving now, when I'm carving, I've been carving for so long that I, I just, just go and I don't, and I, I just experience this, this flow of movement where I don't have to think about what I'm doing. It just happens. I think in practice, you're, you're right. Training is what allows us to sort of synchronize to mm -hmm. that frequency that carrier wave of subtle intelligence in nature if you're not trained you can't connect to it but um i think and, and now i will go now our roles will be reversed i <laughs> stop being the analytic philosopher now <laughs> i think we are lying on top of a vein of subtle intelligence that is not ours at all. And it doesn't depend on training at all. Mm -hmm. um, it's just very, very, it's extraordinarily difficult. One, to synchronize with it, you know, to, to resonate with it. And two, once you do resonate, to distinguish that resonance from your own bullshit. Like my fourth game of chess, I thought, oh, I can win everything if I don't think. I'll just play the first move that comes to my mind and boom, then I lost because I mistook my own bullshit for the subtle, spontaneous intelligence of nature. But I, I will tell you another part of the story that I was not planning to tell. <laughs> and I don't know how you're going to judge it. 
but uh, several years ago, as a philosopher of mine, I thought that it would be unacceptable for me to talk about mind and consciousness uh, without studying my own mind and consciousness in every way available. And one way available in my country, where it's legal, is to use psychedelics. There was another time in which I played those games of chess uh, during the re-entry of a psychedelic trip. And uh, I don't know whether you have ever taken psychedelics. You probably don't need, if you live a symbolic symbolic life, you probably don't need there. I have I had a very, very hard mind. So I, I needed to take a hammer to it to sort of open myself up to certain things. So I did need it. Um, it has been useful. It's a phase of my life that is behind me now. I don't feel compelled to do it again. But at the time I did, it has been very helpful. Uh, but one thing you... Anybody who has done psychedelics know is that um, during the re-entry, when you're sort of beginning to reconstitute your daily self, your mind is sort of reconstituting its narratives, reconstituting its cognitive associations, that web of associations that gives it a sense of personal identity. During that transition, you there's no way other way of putting this. You can't think straight. You're very open, as if you were in, dreaming when you're not thinking straight uh, your the imagery of a dream unfolds spontaneously and that characterizes that phase of a trip when you begin to come back you can take certain decisions um there there is a sober part of your mind standing behind you but you can't think logically in other words you you can't calculate in a game of chess and i played games of chess in that state and i won all of them and if you ask me, was that based on my training? No, because that that mind standing behind me was saying to me, I have absolutely no idea why I want to play this move. No idea whatsoever. It looks like a completely absurd move to me. Why am I doing this? Now, 15 moves later, it would be clear why I absolutely needed to play that move. And I knew it. Um, was that because of training? No. I think it was a very, very difficult, subtle state of mind in which you plug in to a collective stream of spontaneous intelligence in the mind of nature. And if you plug into that for briefly, before your ego reasserts itself and mistakes it for its own bullshit, uh, that brief window of time, uh, you 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 are manifesting spontaneous intelligence that has absolutely nothing to do with your training. Look, let me be more objective now. There are people who suffer from so-called acquired savant syndrome, um, in which you suffer uh, head trauma, damage to your brain, ordinary brain function is now impacted, it's damaged, and they become geniuses. Like they can do enormous mathematical uh, calculations uh, instantly, mm. as fast as a computer. And if people ask them, how did you know the result? They will, they will invariably say, I don't know, it just came to me. I looked at it and I knew the answer. Mm -hmm. They don't take explicit metacognitive steps of reasoning to arrive at the solution to a mathematical problem. They just do it. Mm. And, and that is a possibility, that's a capability that is unlocked by damage, brain damage, lightning strikes to the head, uh, 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 head trauma from car accidents, 
uh, even the progression of dementia can unlock uh, acquired savant. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you make sense of that? Uh, I would say the only way to make sense of that is that damage is so specific. They, they got so lucky in the kind of damage they suffered that uh, instead of the damage impairing their normal metacognitive intelligence, or in addition to impairing their normal metacognitive intelligence, it unlocked a part of the human mind that blocks out the spontaneous intelligence of nature in order to benefit uh, metacognitive intelligence. In other words, uh, um, uh, deliberate reasoning, deliberate mm -hmm. thinking, deliberate decision-making, which probably had all kinds of evol evolutionary advantages because it's based on the notion of an individual self that needs to survive. Uh, and, and that somehow obfuscates the spontaneous intelligence of nature that is always at, at the, the foundational level of ourselves and the whole of nature. And, and when that is unlocked by, of all things, trauma, damage, um, then you see true spontaneous intelligence at, at, at work that has nothing to do with training. Mm -hmm. Acquired savants didn't train. Yeah. They didn't train musical composition. They didn't train mathematics. They didn't train any of that. Yeah, no, I, I've seen examples of that. There was one guy who all of a sudden could see, he saw geometric shapes everywhere. Like he could see extremely complex geometric patterns underlying reality and would, would draw them just freehand, like all these complex geometric patterns. So I know I, I seems like you're, you, there's something there for sure. I, I have a question for you because it's something that I have heard you talk about and I hear you, you brought it back again in this conversation, which is, let's say the difference between cog cognition and metacognition and let's say the fact that we are meta-conscious or we're self-conscious do you perceive or do you do you think that there are other beings that are that have that that characteristic or do you think that at least at least as you know only humans are self-conscious I think to the degree that humans are self-conscious or metacognitive only humans are I think there are, and there's enough evidence to very seriously contemplate the possibility that uh, cetaceans and pachyderms, and perhaps some other higher primates, primates are to some extent metaconscious, but not to the extent that we are. And the reason I say this is the following: in the evolution of metaconsciousness, there is a point in which you cross over a, a crucial boundary, and that's the boundary of instinct. Um, when you become extremely metaconscious, you stop listening to instinct, you stop listening to the spontaneous intelligence of nature, um, and you will listen only to your deliberate planning, your deliberate action taking. And that unplugs us from the web of instinct that, that keeps nature balanced. And that's why we risk destroying the planet and ourselves. Uh, well, destroying the ecosystems of the planet. We'll never destroy the planet. Give it a million years and it will be full of trees and animals again. But we will destroy the present ecosystem. Why? Because uh, we have become alienated from uh, the ebb and flow of instinct given our extremely high level of metacognition. And even if cetaceans and pachyderms uh, have a degree of metacognition, it clearly has not yet been enough to unplug them from instinct. Otherwise, they would be building technology by now. Okay. 
And so, so I imagine that when you look at the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, you see that in that story, which is the shift between cognition and metacognition and the, the knowledge of, of good and evil, let's say. Yeah, that's when we were expelled from the garden. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful metaphor for when you are expelled from the web of instinct. Um, it, I mean, the, the story in Genesis, it, it raises the hairs in my body when I think yeah. about that story, because the level of insight in that story, if you have the eyes to read it, and you don't cartoonize it by taking it literally, the, the, the depth of insight there is, is, is amazing. And when you think, sorry if I go on a tirade, stop me if I, if I, if I shouldn't, but when you, when you think um, of how long it took us to see the truth in that story and how much effort it took us, it, it raises the question, how did the Jews exiled in, in, in Babylon two and a half thousand years ago come up with that stuff? How on earth could they? I mean, it, it, it's astounding. O only very recently, uh, when we've discovered that uh, the rise of symbolic thinking in humans occurred only 30 to 50,000 years ago, about 150,000, maybe 250,000 after whatever genetic mutations happened that made us anatomically modern humans. We have existed as anatomically modern humans, and you know, biologically modern humans, for two to three hundred thousand years. But only thirty to fifty thousand years ago did we begin to think symbolically. In other words, did we develop metacognition, which is astounding because whatever mutation has led to our unique ability to think symbolically happened and was fixed in the genome thousands of years before it was of any use. How on earth this contradicts evolution in a certain way? And there is a famous guy, Ian Tattersall, the curator of the American history of uh, the American Museum of Natural History. He's on record saying in his book, Masters of the Planet, he's saying the only reason we have to believe that such a thing, the fall, that such a thing could ever possibly have happened is that it did happen mm -hmm. otherwise it would be risible it's beyond implausible it, it's mm -hmm. downright ridiculous that it could happen and and the jews exiled in barcelona in, in, in babylon mm. <laughs> knew it two and a half thousand years ago that that boggles my mind i don't know about yours but you know <laughs> i i just i become disorientated with it yeah well i mean uh... Because you see, for, according to the to Genesis, we didn't fall into humanity. We fell as humans. That's an important differentiation, which is now what we know scientifically was the case. Mm -hmm. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. No, 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 that's fine. Uh, so, so this is, I mean, this is really where my question is leading to this 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 problem because I've shown you even now you were talking about unconsciousness and you're talking about say the ground of being or the ground of, of subjectivity as being an unconscious and so you seem to be uh, you seem to, to not like the idea that metaconsciousness is so let, let, let me re rephrase this so there's a sense in which you see this in the mystical fathers. You see this in Saint Ephraim and and in and several of the church fathers, where they talk about how the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil 
the reason why it made us fall was because we were not ready for it. And that it is ultimately a blessing, but it's a blessing that had to be prepared, you could say. And so either either Adam and Eve would have, sometimes Adam and Eve are represented as children. You see that in St. Irenaeus, for example, and that that this fall is necessary for their, it's like an educational process in which they will then come back up on the other side as having integrated both the consciousness of good and evil and the garden. And the image of that, of course, is something like the heavenly Jerusalem. We see that at the end of the Bible. Um, and so there's a sense in which, at least in this type of vision, that conscious meta-consciousness is what brings about the fall, but is ultimately what actually makes us similar to God. And, and because I've heard you talk about God more as this kind of unconscious or basic consciousness that doesn't have metacognition. And so I was wondering it, what your thought is on that, which is that at least in the Christian understanding, and I think in many other religious understandings, the idea that God is unconscious or is just this, this very, very basic form of consciousness that doesn't have metaconsciousness seems to imply that metaconsciousness is, is a degrading from that or that it's a fall again, that it's only a fall or that it's, it's a, it's a, that it's a less, it's less than what, uh, where it comes from. Well, there's a lot. Sorry. Back <laughs> there, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> go back to to my true story and how i played chess extremely well while lacking meta consciousness because i was under the effect of drugs um if you regard it from that perspective meta consciousness was limiting because a limited but deliberate form of intelligence meta conscious intelligence obfuscated a spontaneous much broader but less reliable form of intelligence in other words, the spontaneous intelligence of nature. But the guy who won those games was the spontaneous intelligence of nature. Yeah. Uh, unobfuscated by my explicit, deliberate reasoning. From that perspective, it is a step backwards because it contracts intelligence. Um, but whatever stays within the field of metacognition, which is a contracted field, vastly contracted field, it's like looking down a microscope. You only see a tiny part of the world, but that tiny part now is visible. So you are, as far as that tiny part is concerned, it's better. You see it more clearly. It's like looking down the microscope. You see one square millimeters, but you see it more clearly. It is better, but it's worse in the sense that you don't see anything around it anymore. And to me, that's metaconsciousness. And that's why metaconsciousness was favored by evolution, because as far as survival is concerned, you only need to look at the tiny subset of existence that is in your immediate surroundings because that's what has a direct immediate bearing on your survival and your ability to reproduce. So metaconsciousness is like a microscope. It blinds you to nearly everything, but it makes you see much more clearly whatever remains within its field. It obfuscates everything else, but it amplifies what it focuses on. So it's both a step forward and a step 
backward. Now in the Bible, it's written that the serpent tells Eve that after she takes a bite from the fruit of the tree of, of knowledge, she will be like God. Uh -huh. Now you may interpret that as God being metaconscious, but I interpret it differently. And I'll show you with you my own interpretation. The key characteristic of the deity is the ability to create realities. That's that ultimately is, is the single most defining feature of the divine mind is the ability to create realities. A non-metacognitive mind cannot create realities because it's always in the present. That's the Eastern Advaita and Buddhist approaches. You're always in the present. In other words, you're always in the world created for you by the divinity. But when you metacognize and you identify yourself as a subject of your experiences, as opposed to the experiences themselves, metacognition is what allows you to say, I have hunger, as opposed to I am the hunger. If you're always in the present, you are the hunger, buddy. You yeah. don't have hunger. You are the hunger. Um, you are the world created for you. But when you become metacognitive, you invent futures and you manipulate pasts. You create worlds. You create realities. And I think it is in that sense that Eve would become like God, having taken a bite from the fruit of metacognition. And that is a fall in, in the same way that looking down a microscope is a fall. It's a contraction. It obfuscates everything else. You become blind to everything. But it is a step forward in the sense that it allows you to see that tiny subset more clearly. So... Uh, have you ever thought about creation that way, which is that if you read a, a creation account in Genesis, you have at the outset, you have, you know, the, heaven and earth, the earth is chaos and void, emptiness and void. And then God creates names at the outset. And if you see the way it works is that God says, let there be light. And then God sees and God says it is good. It is good. Right. And so there is that narrowing. It seems like that narrowing is actually part of the the separation of phenomena itself, because the 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 the, the un completely unbridled potential, or just like you know the the un un anything that has no identity yet that is completely just potential is not in. You can't inhabit that. Like even when you took your psychedelics, you didn't. If you if you had well, you, I mean, imagine that some people say they do reach that point of complete, you know, but then you you couldn't stay like that for you wouldn't stay there for very long, right? Because you would probably just die of hunger at some point, or you would you wouldn't. But there has to be this focus where there's a contraction and uh, pointing, and then a recognizing of the good. So, so that's why I that's why I mean I really like the idea that you're saying that there's a sense in which metaconsciousness part of the creation of worlds i seem i think i see that in the in the genesis creation narrative itself i will agree with you i'm not going to interpret evidence differently just to fit my narrative so i will agree with you that um, that part of genesis where god passes value judgments on his creation um, is an indication a indication of metacognition because value judgments can only be passed through metacognition. That's why animals are amoral. They are not metacognizant, so they can't pass 
value judgments. They they carry no moral responsibility. We do, mm. um, and the Bible does suggest that uh, the creation, the Creator divinity, uh, was metaconscious insofar as it could could pass value judgment. Um, so I'll give you two answers. Based on pure, a purely analytic approach, the natural sciences and you no know, empirical evidence, rational thinking, I would say we have every reason to believe that the broader mind of nature, mind at large, is not metaconscious. Why? Because metaconsciousness seems to have been something that evolved at great cost through eons of evolution by natural selection. It seems to be an ability that forms in response to a challenging environment, an, an environment that requires appropriate and uh, timely um, responses to environmental challenges. And, and therefore, that narrowing of metacognition that allows for a more efficient, localized, narrow, but much more efficient and clear response was uh, favored by natural selection. So if metaconsciousness is something that evolved, then it was not there in the beginning. And the divine mind or the mind of nature, that especially unbound field of subjectivity that underlies all nature, did not have to put up with the challenges of a local ecosystem. So it wouldn't have metaconsciousness. Another reason is we don't seem to see metaconsciousness in um, the simpler forms of life on this planet the evolutionarily speaking earlier forms of life, um, there is a clear correlation between more evolved species and increasing metaconsciousness. Pachyderms, cetaceans, and higher primates, primates are highly evolved species. Um, if you look at paramecium or paramecia, which are single-celled organisms that go after food and run away from danger, even though they don't have a nervous system, um, they react instinctively. Crocodiles are very instinctual creatures. You can tell precisely uh, how many inches you have to be close to a crocodile before it tries to lounge on you. Uh, it's not a deliberating meta-consciousness. Meta so from an analytic and empirical perspective, I would say we have every reason to think that meta-consciousness is evolved and it's not there from the beginning. It's not in the mind of nature. It's not in the mind of God, which doesn't mean that nature isn't intelligent because spontaneous intelligent isn't metacognitive and spontaneous intelligence, although doesn't amplify things, it has a very broad view. It's the telescope as opposed to the microscope. It doesn't discern the microscopic details, but it sees a lot more. Um, now, if I ignore uh, analytic philosophy and natural sciences, and we speak purely from religious scripture and religious insight, then I would have to acknowledge that uh, there are plenty of suggestions throughout the religious traditions of this, wor this world that the creator divinity, even if it's not the ultimate divinity like in Gnosticism, the creator divinity was metaconscious. That seems to be suggested throughout. Do I think that is a possibility? Well, certainly it is a possibility, but in my mind, it's a possibility that would require the following. It would require this reality to be a deliberately created reality and not a spontaneous naturalistic unfolding of what is. Not a product of nature, but an artificial creation with rules set in a premeditated, 
premeditated way for a deliberate purpose. In other words, a kind of theater that was set up for a purpose by a metaconscious intelligence. That's what it would require. Do I see external empirical evidence for it? No, none. Do I see conceptual reasons to entertain this possibility? No, none. Do I have intuitions every now and then that resonate with this possibility? Yes, I do. Yeah. And so if we if we take that again, so let's say we go back to this notion of of, of metacognition as being in some ways a, a fall and a narrowing, but there is also a manner in which we act. Once we have it, we act in relationship to that. That is that, for example, spontaneous intelligence, uh, a berserker has spontaneous intelligence, right? That's actually a good example. Like the berserker enters into a state of flow where they can kill indeterminately with the strength of, of, of 10 men and, and it's, a, it's an ecstatic moment. Uh, but but so so there's a sense with that natural intelligence or that that spontaneous intelligence that we see in animals does not have this does not have a a sense of the good at least not the way that that we do um yeah and so and so once we have that then we act that's why it's also the knowledge of good and evil that's why at least in scripture it it, it, it is related to it is a fall but it, it is also an entering into something which can bring Bring more, let's say we value judgments more. Yes, right? exactly. And so, yeah, and so, so that's why I because the the thing I'm worried about in the way you describe it is that if if we if we don't let's say I'll say I'll say it in very in very gross religious terms like if we don't have a God that's good, then we have a problem down the line, which is that at some point there's no justification. There's no ultimate justification for the superiority of our of our ethical intuitions to the intuition that would drive a berserker to rape and pillage and kill everybody in a village, you know. And so, where does the where does the sense of 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 the superiority of one over the other like what is that even where does that come from? Most of what you you will see or hear me argue is what I can argue for based on analytic reasoning and evidence. And if you put me against a wall and a gun to my head and say, okay, now make your best bet about what's going on. If you're wrong, I'm going to shoot you. Then that's the position I would hold, the position informed by analytic reasoning and, and empirical objective evidence. But I entertain other possibilities in my mind, which I don't talk about because I can't argue for mm -hmm. them. I, I cannot write a book by saying, well, I have an intuition that this and that. Yeah, okay, yeah, thank you very much, but why do I care, right? Why would the reader care? Um, so I, I, I would try to defend the point you're making from an analytic perspective, which doesn't mean that I completely reject the point you're making, mm -hmm. okay? Um, I'll, I'll just try to do my best to defend it from an analytic perspective. I think The responsibility for morals, for morality, in a naturalistic universe, in other words, a universe that unfolds spontaneously because it is what it is, as opposed to an artificially set up environment that follows a premeditated plan. 
in the naturalistic universe, the responsibility for moral judgment is stronger for us than it is in a universe created by a metaconscious divinity that has its own moral book. Because in the latter case, we are just ignorant. Somebody has the, the right answers. So the responsibility lies more with that entity, which then raises questions like, if God knows what's good, why does it allow the berserker to do what it does? Who has ultimate moral responsibility for the berserker doing what he does? The berserker, you and I, or the God who created this whole thing and set it all up? Mm. Who has the moral responsibility for what's happening in Ukraine right now in a universe that was metaconsciously and in a premeditated, premeditated way set up by a thinking self-conscious divinity? Is it you and I? Is it Putin? Or is it the divinity that allowed for Putin to exist in, in this reality? In the naturalistic universe, universe, the responsibility is ours, including the berserker. And now you might ask, well, how do I know who has the best moral call, the berserker or, or me? There is no outside answer for that question. That's the price you pay in a, in a naturalistic universe. Um, Nietzsche has been brilliant in the late 19th century, picking apart Christian morals. Um, and to this day, it's difficult to refute some of the things he says uh, from pure, a purely logical and evidence-based perspective. Um, and that was the genius of Nietzsche, that he could just trounce things that seem to be morally obvious to us. Uh, and 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 actually defend the very opposite, you know, the Superman, uh, the the morals of the strong, as opposed of as opposed to slave morality. So the, the answer is I don't have an answer, uh, Jonathan. I just would defend the notion that whatever the answer is, the responsibility for finding the answer is ours. We carry the ultimate moral responsibility in a naturalistic universe that has no pre-written book of moral codes. Because people tend to think that unless morals are etched in stone before the rise of human beings, then morals don't exist. The moral responsibility doesn't exist unless it's grounded on something prior and external. I, I would argue the opposite. It's the very fact that in a naturalistic universe, there is no tables of moral codes it's that very fact that imbues in us the ultimate, supreme moral responsibility. Uh, to, the, the, the responsibility for discerning between good and evil. The responsibility for reacting to what Putin is doing now. So it's not a satisfactory answer, but it's the best. No, no, no. I, but I, I, I understand. And I think that you, you obviously put your finger on the most difficult question. Like the, the, the problem of evil or the problem of suffering is definitely always the one that makes all religious people, you know, stand back and, 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 and wonder and, and question, because that is a definitely a, that is definitely something that the way that Christians would would defend the, the 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 answer would be that it is something that is related to the fall somehow that there's a relationship to the fall that we have an intuition in us that 
there should things should be different. We could at least frame it that way. That things that there's something awry about the way things are. There's something which is not aiming properly towards the good that isn't properly aligned towards the good, and we represent it in this in this story uh, of of the fall. Um, and so there is a sense in which the the fact that things are not good is due to is actually due to us. So I I do think that in the also in the Christian cosmology, like the real Christian cosmology, there's a sense in which the responsibility does come back onto us because although it's not you can't it's not something that you can describe scientifically because it if you try to do it it it, it gets weird. But that intuition is real. The intuition that something is wrong, that something <laughs> isn't right. Um, and, and we have the, the responsibility to aim ourselves towards the good and that that is the best thing we can do to, to reshape the world, let's say. And if we're willing to, to end it, of course, the image of Christ ends up being the ultimate image in the Christian cosmology of, of that it's actually through self-sacrifice that, that this will happen. That if you, that if you are able to give yourself, um, to the good, then that's the best thing you can do. But I agree that that for many people that's that's not enough, especially in a in a scientific frame, because they'll say things like like you know things have been dying and eating each other and killing each other for millions and millions of years before humans woke up, let's say. Um, but nonetheless, I think that if we understand it more as as an experience. I would say that would be the, the best way that I would frame it. There is something you said earlier, uh, that there is some theology suggesting that uh, the fall in and of itself was not bad. It it was the timing. It was too early. It was before we were prepared for it. Right. Or eating, or eating the fruit was before we were ready. You can yeah. say that. Yeah. If we interpret the fall as the fall into metacognitions, in metacognition, uh, then I would say... Empirically, that's obviously true. We broke our relationship with the harmony of instinct before we were prepared. And what happened was that uh, we became able to develop technology because of metacognition, but without the empathy required to apply that technology uh, wisely, as opposed to a very narrowly contracted field of personal benefit. Uh, which is exactly what we leverage when we use technology. So I would say, yeah, the fall happened before it was a good move on the part of nature or on the part of the divinity. Uh, it was too early. And the evidence for that is life as we live it today and the risks that we bring to ourselves and everything else that lives on the surface of this planet. Uh, the fall is nature's biggest gamble, if it was a gamble, or nature's potential biggest mistake, if it was a mistake. And from that perspective, I think the language of we are born in sin makes sense, not in a literal sense, but we are born in sin insofar as we are born metacognizant. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, and while acknowledging that metacognition is, is the, the fountainhead of suffering, psychological suffering, there is this other thing that is horrible and doesn't depend on metacognition, that's pain. Um, and nature has 
copious amounts of it. You know, mm. I, I always refer to, to this documentary that impressed me very much a few years ago. A pride of lions isolated a grown elephant from from its group and brought it down and ate this elephant from the hind legs upwards for six hours before the elephant passed out. That's nature. You know, earthworms are being cut alive into wiggling pieces by ants uh, in your backyard every day. Mm. Um, that's not good, if you ask me. If I were the divinity and if I were meta-conscious, I wouldn't do that. On the other hand, and that's when I surrender to everything you said, what we consider good or bad is largely dependent on scope. If you ha don't have a broad enough scope to see how what seems very bad locally is ultimately good, then you can't make a wise moral judgment. The philosophers have a problem that illustrates this. The problem is the following. There is a train coming and there is a Y split on the railway. And on the one side of the split, there is a guy tied down to the rails. And on the other side, there are four guys tied down to the rails. Um, and uh, the railway is set up in such a way that the train is going to go to the one guy as opposed to the four. And it's going to kill that one guy, but the other four will survive. And you have your hands on the lever that allows, so, sorry, the train would go to the four guys, would mm -hmm. kill the four guys if you don't do anything. And the one guy would survive. You have the hands on the lever and you can switch the rail line in such a way that the train kills only the one and not the four. Yeah, but now you're killing him. Now you are the one. Yeah, right. And you only see you. You don't see the other four. He only sees himself and you with your hands on the lever. And he sees you moving the lever so the train goes to you to him. From his narrow scope, you have committed an, in, an unfathomable act of evil. But from a broader scope, you've taken the decision that one should take. So who are we to judge? Yeah. Who are we to judge whether that elephant shouldn't have suffered for six hours? I have to I have to go, but I I love this guy. Thank you so much for this conversation, Bernardo. I, I think like I still feel like we're always just scratching the surface though. That's the thing. <laughs> we do a third round. I enjoy it very much. I well. really enjoy it. I appreciate it. And I'd definitely be willing to to go for another round. So thanks so much. And thank thanks, you. Marcus, for organizing this. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Bernardo. It's been a pleasure to listen to you both for the most part again. And um yeah, I'd love to do it again with you guys, of course. Um, online, number one. And uh, number two, I was thinking uh, if either of you are interested in coming to Ireland, uh, say, next year for an in-person event, that would be fantastic. I know we've had a great event recently with Paul Vanderley and Paul Kingsnorth and that. So God willing, we can make it happen. And uh, I don't know if you have any interest in that. <laughs> I would definitely be, I mean, I'll be probably traveling a few times to the UK the next year. And so if we can organize it, I would love that. I know how Bernardo is probably super busy too, but if it could work, I'll, I'll be there. I, I cannot promise. I would even say it's unlikely. I get, um, I would say, I have to deal with lots of requests, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is a great honor. Uh, it's not something I complain about at all. It's humbling. Uh, but every time, I have to jump on a plane. It's not only the time of the event, but two days before and two days after. Yeah, and, exactly. and that can be very tricky. So I'm not going to promise you. On the other hand, 
one of the holes in my life is I have never visited Ireland. I've <laughs> gone around the world multiple times and I haven't been directly acquainted with the green fields of Ireland. So who knows? <laughs> no problem. Uh, thank you so much again, Jens, and have a lovely evening. God bless you. Thank you, guys. All right. Take care. Bye.